The Prometheus Project lights a fire under solar system exploration this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. What would we do if we had a 100 or 200 times as much power to move space vehicles among the planets? John Cassani runs a project with that goal in mind. We'll talk with him about nuclear electric ion propulsion. And for all of you who were baffled by Bruce Betts's trivia question about the writing on spacesuits, relief is coming up in today's What's Up segment. Lots going on in our planetary neighborhood this week. The European Space Agency's Mars Express orbiter may have found evidence for a sea of ice on the red planet. And we're not talking about something that dried up a million years ago, but one that could be there right now, a few meters under the surface. You can learn more at planetary.org. This has a lot to do with a new call by ESA scientists for a European mission to find life on Mars. Can't tell your craters without a program. Cassini is giving us our first close-up look at many of Saturn's moons. That means there are suddenly lots of surface features crying out for names. The tale of Jason and the Argonauts is providing the handles for little pockmarked Phoebe. The cast of characters is listed at planetary.org. And Spaceship One is headed for the Smithsonian. The little vehicle that won the XPRIZE with its suborbital flights will be on display by the end of the year. I'll be right back with John Cassani of the Prometheus Project. Here's Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, If Mars was warm and wet once, would Mars and Earth have looked the same? Since the beginning of the space age, opinions have wavered back and forth between the idea that Mars was once warm and wet like Earth, and Mars was always cold and dry like the Moon. Early spacecraft images showed evidence for both ideas. Scientists realized that a key test of the Mars climate question would be the composition of rocks that formed on early Mars. If there was water on Mars for a long time, they thought, we should find rocks that look like those on Earth that form in watery environments. In particular, because Mars has an atmosphere rich in carbon dioxide, a warm, wet Mars should create carbonate rocks like the limestone we have all over the Earth. But in the 90s, Mars-orbiting spacecraft failed to find much evidence of carbonate minerals on Mars. Was Earth the only warm, wet place? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. John Cassani heads the Prometheus Project, tasked with developing a revolutionary source of electric power and propulsion for interplanetary spacecraft. It's the latest in a long line of assignments John has worked on at the Jet Propulsion Lab outside Pasadena, California. The first probe to make use of nuclear electric propulsion was to have been the Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter. But JIMO, as it's called, is an extremely challenging and expensive mission, so NASA has decided to postpone it in favor of a less ambitious so-called demonstration effort. And so that's what's been introduced into the budget. The JIMO launch was baseline for 2015, and we're now being um, asked to consider a demo mission to be launched in 2014. 
Well, you know, I can't say I'm not disappointed because like everybody, like you, I'm sure, wouldn't it be great to get out there to Europa and spend some time for a while? You were project manager on on the Voyager missions. Yes, I was. I was project manager on the Voyager missions. Uh, the original project manager was Bud Shermeyer, who started the project, and I uh, worked for him for a while. And he left the project about two years before launch, and I took it over at that point in time. But you must have, or if not you, there must have been other people on your team who were thinking – as you got back all that incredible data and images. Boy, I wish we could hang around for a while, and <laughs> which is exactly what the Jimmo mission will do for us. Well, of course, that desire to hang around after the Jimmo, uh, after the Voyager mission, excuse me, is what led to the Galileo mission. Yes. So now we're talking about uh, going into orbit, not at Jupiter, but we'll start off by going into orbit at Jupiter, but then we'll go into orbit around each of the three outer Galilean satellites in order, Gan- uh, Ganymede, uh, rather be Callisto, then Ganymede, and then uh, finally Europa. Hmm. And orbiting Europa is really uh, the challenge of this mission uh, for a lot of reasons. Reasons that we've talked about frequently on this show, although not in not so much in connection with this mission. Obviously, the fact that we believe there's some liquid water underneath all that ice, and we'd love to know more about it. Well, I, I would agree with that. I think the uh, most scientists would agree that the evidence uh, from the Galileo mission is very, very compelling and it's almost certain, if not absolutely certain, that there is water beneath the ice caps at, at Europa. And uh, with less certainty, there's also a probability of uh, water under the ice of the other, uh, the other two satellites, Ganymede and Callisto. So this ambitious mission may be postponed a little bit, but the technology that is the real point of the Prometheus project is, uh, if anything, even more ambitious than any individual mission, because it certainly appears to be the technology which, if we want to really open up the solar system to exploration, I'm not sure there's an alternative with the possible exception of the solar sail, although when you get out toward Jupiter, that gets a little dicey. Yeah, it does, because uh, for the same reason, solar panels, for solar electric uh, energy, um, by the time you're out to Jupiter, the Jupiter radiation is down by a factor of 25, as you know. So uh, nuclear electric propulsion using a, a reactor to generate heat, which is what reactors do, converting that heat to electric power, which uh, is, we will do probably with, with uh, Brayton engines, providing electrical power, mainly, mostly, I should say, for the ion engines. Let, let me stop you. So, Brayton engine, uh, not a thermocouple in this case, but is that actually a mechanical heat engine? Or? Brayton's, uh, Brayton cycle engine is a type of turbine. It's the mm. same, it's a, a thermodynamic cycle, and that's what we have in jet engines. Jet engines are mm. Brayton cycle engines. Mm-hmm. Now, the only difference in our application will be that It'll be what we call a closed cycle Brayton engine, which means we take the exhaust that would come out of the uh, back end of the jet engine, so to speak, and turn it around and feed it in the front end. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason a jet engine works is that um, it burns gas uh, or, or uh, fuel, and that is used to heat and expand the gases and, uh, before it goes through the turbine. In, in our case, what we'll do is take the, coal, the the gases that come out of the turbine and turn them around, run them through a heat exchanger, pick up heat from the reactor, and then reintroduce it into the front end of the engine. But other than that, it's very similar to a jet engine. Thermodynamically, it's the same, it operates on the same principle. And then on the same shaft with the, um, the turbine and the, and the compressor, we'll have an alternator that will generate electricity. 
So that's a fairly straightforward concept, but reducing it to practice for a space mission that has to operate unattended and, you know, flawlessly like ours do for more than 12 years. In the case of the Jupiter icy moon's orbiter mission, or even longer for some of the other missions we're looking at for the, uh, the other outer planets. And that electricity is used to accelerate ions, push them out the back incredibly fast. And this technology, the ion engine, uh, pretty well proven out now in smaller applications like with Deep Space One. That's uh, exactly right. Uh, We're talking about uh, maybe 200 kilowatts of electric power, 150 kilowatts of electric power to 200 to these ion engines compared to one kilowatt or two kilowatts that have been used before. So we've scaled wow. this up by by a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that means more thrust and uh, higher efficiency. The, the other engines ran about uh, 2,000 seconds or something like that, which is a measure of how effectively, uh, efficiently the uh, engine uses a propellant to generate thrust. And we're, we're talking about uh, something in the range of 7,000 seconds, plus or minus 1,000 maybe. <laughs> We're talking to John Cassani. He's the project manager for, well, you were listed as project manager for the JIMO Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter mission. And I don't know if that uh, title has changed now, but... Uh, well, uh, there's yeah, there's a little bit of confusion, I think. the uh, I'm the Prometheus project manager, hmm. and the, um, the goal of the Prometheus project is to develop this uh, nuclear electric propulsion capability, which can be used for long-duration outer planet missions. Uh, and the first mission designated was the Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter mission. So, and I am the leader of that because it's uh, it comes part and parcel with the being the Prometheus project manager. And so we will talk when we come back about some of those other mission profiles that nuclear electric propulsion may open up okay. uh, to humanity. Uh, and we'll do that right after we come back from uh, this quick break. Hope you'll stay with us. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Our guest this week is John Cassani. We are in his offices at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory near Pasadena, California. He is the project manager for the Prometheus Project, also a member, I guess, of the executive committee here at JPL. That's right. I'm a member of the executive council at JPL. Executive council, sorry. We were talking about the technology that the Prometheus Project is all about and that even though the Jimo or Gmo, you want to you want to cue me on that you're the boss of this. Can you give me the correct pronunciation because I hear it four or five different ways. Well, whether it's Gmo or Jimo or Gymo is a matter of preference. Uh, it's either tomato or tomato or eo or io. People are going to pronounce it the way they want to. As long as we don't call the whole thing off. We won't call the whole thing off. I'm I'm happy to be the project manager. I don't need to branch into being a 
the pronunciation Gestapo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you have enough to deal with. That's right. I looked at the the team that you have brought together, the different agencies and institutions. Now, this is not out of the ordinary for a mission of this kind of scale, but this list is in, is truly amazing because it involves, for example, the Secretary of Energy and Naval Reactors Program, which uh, tells me that your your reactor technology, I suppose, is somewhat related to what the Navy has uh, been successful with? Well, please uh, don't, uh, don't suggest that uh, the Secretary of Navy works on the project with me. I, it's true that we have a, um, a broad, broad spectrum of uh, capability and talent across the country. It's, uh, four or five uh, NASA centers besides APL are involved in this. And uh, Sean O'Keefe, when he was um, the um, the administrator of NASA, he was really the the father of this program. It was his conviction that uh, we needed this technology. He also was convinced that to build a reactor and put it in space was really very challenging, and it was his belief, and um, I, he's absolutely turned out to be absolutely correct, or he was absolutely correct from the beginning, that the best talent in the country for dealing with reactors have been the organization called Naval Reactors, which is the organization that uh, Admiral Rickover founded. And um, we're really happy to have them part of this program. You also awarded a big contract uh, about five months ago. Yes, we did. That was uh, following um, a um, almost two-year study contract that we had let competitively to three of the uh, aerospace industry uh, contractors, and GST was selected. And they are now partners with us in uh, developing the spacecraft. So the work goes on and will go on for many years uh, because this really is groundbreaking technology. And you've got a lot of stuff that's never been worked out before. That's right. I think that the, the right way to characterize this or think about this, this is transforming technology. This is going to transform the way we go about solar system exploration in, in the years to come. This technology is going to open up capabilities that just heretofore have not been possible, couldn't even been, you know, uh, imagined or thought of. A, a good example of this, we spent several Several years here at JPL, a few years back, uh, studying a uh, Europa orbiter mission. I, I think we had a pretty good handle on it. We were talking about carrying a science payload of about 30 kilograms into uh, uh, Europa orbit, operating it with maybe 50 watts of power. It would operate for three or four weeks. That was limited by the radiation exposure there, and basically maybe 100 kilobits per second uh, data return to the Earth. Uh, with the JUMO mission, we're planning to take 1,500 kilograms of uh, science payload into orbit at Europa. We'll have 5 kilowatts, 10 kilowatts of power to uh, energize those instruments and can return the data back from from the uh, Jupiter system at the rate of 10 or more megabits per second compared to 100 or 200 kilobits per second. Wow. And we have the power to, or the capability to maneuver around in that system to yeah. go not just sure. to Europa, to, but to go to the other three moons. And you can think of other missions that are similar. Uh, we, we, we will probably go to a Neptune uh, orbiter mission in the future with uh, also orbiting Triton, the large moon there, a, a Titan orbiter, maybe carrying a, carrying a rover, comet chasing missions, uh, missions that can go from one asteroid to another, a series of them, and all with uh, substantial science instruments, as much power, basically, as you can imagine. We, uh, we're going to see a lot uh, of mission innovations that can be 
um, executed with this capability. Uh, the only one I, that I've heard talked about that you didn't just mention would be uh, an asteroid mission. Well, we will have cer- uh, certainly an asteroid rendezvous where we can go and do science from one mission to another. But another very interesting uh, uh, capability that uh, this system that we were, we were building will be able to do, uh, and that is what uh, has been referred to as an asteroid tugboat mission. Uh, Rusty Schweiker and the B612 people have, uh, have been uh, calling people's attention to the fact that there are a lot of near-Earth objects uh, in the vicinity in the solar system, near-Earth, uh, meaning that there are uh, paths that cross the Earth's uh, orbit or very close to it. And more and more of these are being discovered every day. And uh, sooner or later, it's not if but when, uh, one of these is going to recontact the Earth. One of them has our name on it. Yeah. One of them has our name on it. So uh, it would be nice if we had the capability uh, to go out and intercept that an asteroid that was headed for the Earth and nudge it out of the way. In and fact, that's what this technology can do for yeah, us. Yeah, in fact, Rusty Schweikert and the B612 team, they were smart. They took your basic design and show it uh, <laughs> nudging a, an asteroid. But yeah. we're almost out of time. Let's talk about just the design of the spacecraft. And I realize these are just early artist conceptions. But it happens to be, in my humble opinion, one of the coolest-looking spacecraft ever, <laughs> partly because you have this big delta of what look like solar panels, but of course they're not solar panels. No, they're not solar panels, they're radiators. And here's the, here's the deal. Uh, to convert heat from the reactor into electricity, we have to run through a power converter. We're looking at Brayton engines, as I mentioned, which can produce, uh, you know, a power at about 20 to 25 percent efficiency. So let's just say we wanted to have power, uh, electrical power of 200 kilowatts, and the efficiency is, say, 20 percent. Um, that means we'd have to generate a, a megawatt, uh, 1,000 kilowatts, convert 200 kilowatts of that 1,000 to electricity, and then what do you do with the other 800 kilowatts? If you don't get rid of it, the temperature of the spacecraft is going to go up. Yeah. So the way we get rid of it is take the, that waste heat and circulate it through the radiator panels uh, with liquid. It be sodium or potassium or even water, conceivably, hmm. and take the heat away from the reactor and the power converter and run it down the boom and run it out on those uh, large radiator panels. And they heat up, and they're looking at the you know the deep space temperature of about 4 degrees Kelvin. And so um, that's how we get rid of the heat. And that's interesting because those panels dominate the configuration the yeah. visually of the spacecraft. That's what you see when you look at it. it yeah, it makes it, uh, as looks I like said. a big Ship, right? It does, it does, which is a, a, a wonderful metaphor. We're pretty much out of time. There's just one more question that I know we have to ask, and that is one you get hit with, I'm sure, often. The idea of putting a nuclear reactor into space and that there are some, I think, misconceptions about the safety of doing this because I think, for one thing, you don't turn it on until it's uh, up there and far from Earth. That's right. We would not, we would not turn it on until it's well out of the Earth's uh, influence and uh, without any possibility of re- recontacting or re-entering the, the Earth. We are looking at, at some trajectories that start out at 1,000 kilometers altitude and fire the reactor up there and spiral out of the Earth's gravity well. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a very safe thing to do because even if the system would fail after it had been operating for a short while or a long while, uh, that's such a high altitude that the for, for the spacecraft to decay from that uh, altitude is is several orders of magnitude of lifetime longer than the the lifetime of the decay products that we'd be worried about. Huh. And we're looking at, at trajectories that go directly away from the Earth. But safety is paramount here, and we will design this and execute this in, in a way that that's, uh, uh, that is safe. John, we're out of time. In fact, we've gone a little bit long here. I wish we had even more time, but I, I certainly hope that we can visit you again as this uh, Prometheus project proceeds, progresses over the years. What did you call it? No, no this is transforming Transforming technology. technology. This is the technology that really will open up the new age of planetary exploration. John Cassani has been our guest. He's the project manager for NASA's, NASA JPL's Prometheus project, primarily designed to uh, make nuclear electric propulsion work in space, but uh, almost as a byproduct to uh, get us pretty much wherever we want to go and take a lot of stuff along with us in the solar system. We'll be back to learn more about this uh, in coming shows. We'll be back here with Bruce Betts on What's Up in just a minute or so after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. In the 90s, it seemed that Mars's surface lacked any chemicals that could have formed in a warm, wet environment. But the Mars Exploration rovers have found wet chemistry, just not the kind that scientists were looking for. The rovers have found sulfate minerals, known on Earth as Epsom salts. Scientists are now realizing that Mars may have had warm and wet environments, but with a fundamental difference from Earth's. The sulfate minerals suggest that Mars's rivers and lakes were acidic. Acid rain falling on acidic rocks making acidic rivers would have prevented limestone from forming. Any carbonate minerals on Mars would dissolve easily in the acid waters. Mars's carbon would have stayed up in the air as carbon dioxide, which is good news for the proponents of a warm Mars because carbon dioxide is an excellent greenhouse gas. These acid waters don't sound much like Earth, But in fact, there are many environments on Earth where volcanic activity creates acidic water. These places are often teeming with ancient, primitive bacterial life, which makes scientists think that the early Earth may well have been covered with acidic waters, and that a wet, acid early Mars promises the possibility that life could have begun there too. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. We've reached that hallowed time in Planetary Radio when we turn to Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, by phone this week. We couldn't quite get together. Hi, Bruce. Welcome back. You refer to this as a hollow time, Matt? Hallowed. Hallowed. Oh, hallowed. Oh, oh, that's that's much nicer. We leave it to the listeners to decide how hollow it is. <laughs> well, I'm going to shove those hollow spaces with things to look for in the night sky. You can see on March 2nd and 3rd, the night of March 2nd, if you're in North or South America, you can probably see the star Antares being occulted by the moon. No, not joining the occult, but having the moon pass in front of red Antares. And if you're in the right places, you can actually see it disappear early in the evening and then reappear late at night. Uh, If you want more details, go out there to uh, the web and and find a good astronomy site to show you some maps. That is on March 2nd and 3rd. While we're talking about weird events in the sky, I want to give a little preview a month ahead, so no one accuses me of missing it. 
Get ready for a weird solar eclipse happening on April 8th, and we'll give you more information about that. You're really psyched if you're in various parts of the southern hemisphere to see it, but it's also visible from some of the northern hemisphere as well. We'll give you more later. My appetite is whetted. Excellent. Uh, Speaking of wet... Mars is up in the Redon sky, and it was once wet. You can see Mars. It's right now in Sagittarius, and it will be near the moon, the crescent moon, on March 5th and March 6th. You see it in the pre-dawn sky, a little ways up in the southeast before dawn. If you look in the evening sky, you've got Jupiter rising in the early evening now, early to mid-evening, the brightest object in the sky in the east. Can't miss it. You also have Saturn, which is up high by sunset, early evening, still near Castor and Pollux, looking kind of yellowish, great object to look for in a small telescope. Cool stuff. Random Space Facts! Many features on Saturn's moon Phoebe have now had names applied to them after they were seen in detail by the Cassini spacecraft, and the theme is the story of Jason and the Argonauts, the mythological story. So another whole new set of fun features named uh, things like Jason. Let's talk about that trivia question from a while back, which was on spacesuits, in particular the space shuttle EVA, extravehicular activity suit. What is strange about the writing on the spacesuit? And how'd we do, Matt? Not very well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, Why? the listeners who we You're normally not to say that I know but we we normally praise listeners to, to to high heaven because they so many of them get it right but boy they were really challenged and uh, there was a lot of creative writing involved in this contest as people tried to figure out what you had in mind uh, I mean here's your guy who actually did figure it out he's not our winner Alex Chapman who's a regular listener in uh, Manchester where they're hoping their soccer team doesn't get sold to a nasty American. But anyway, he said, now I have to say this week, you have managed to come up with a really challenging question that I just can't Google my way out of, although Alex figured it out. So did our winner this week, Nathan Campanella of Denver, Colorado. Nathan said, the writing on and the display from some spacesuits is presented backwards so that the astronaut can read the information using a sleeve-mounted mirror. P.S. This is a total guess. Well, guess or not, that is absolutely correct. Not bad, Nathan. Good work. (laughs) Yeah, so that's why if you see those pictures of the astronauts in space, if you look carefully, a lot of the writing, especially anything giving them information about (laughs) their, their system, is written backwards. So they have not flipped the picture around. It is actually written backwards. Uh, Planetary Radio T-shirt will go out to Nathan Campanella very soon. Bill Magnuson, longtime listener to the show, didn't get it right, couldn't figure it out, so he decided to entertain us instead. And if we had been uh, going for funniest answer, he probably would have gotten it. Can I read you some of these? Sure. He said that uh, in case found by alien culture, a return to sender tag. And uh, assembly instructions, and then printed across the butt in large letters, made in Taiwan. And uh, anything in Klingon. And then here's my favorite, done by smart Alec, jealous spacesuit manufacturer on back of life support pack, Kick Me. <laughs> so thank <laughs> that, you, Bill. That just seems so unlikely. <laughs> yes, well, in fact, yes. <laughs> anyway, Bill, thanks for entertaining us. And uh, But Nathan, you're the big winner this week. How about next time? It does actually say Kick Me, but it's written backwards. <laughs> I guess that doesn't make any sense, as opposed to... 
other things. If you want your chance at winning a Planetary Radio t-shirt, go to planetary.org slash radio and answer the following question. Getting back to our friend Phoebe and Phoebe's new names, one of the craters on Phoebe has been named after the Argonaut that uh, was referred to, at least in some mythology, as the Beekeeper. This amused me, so I'm asking you, what's the name of that crater? What's the name of the crater that corresponds in mythology to the Beekeeper? And since mythology can vary, I'll give you a little hint that at least on the Planetary Radio, Planet, excuse me, the Planetary Society website, that's how you'll find the description. I also enjoy the name itself. Go to planetary.org slash radio and enter. And get it into us, get that entry into us by noon Pacific time, March 7, that's Monday, March 7, noon Pacific time. And uh, who knows, you might be the next Nathan Campanella winning that wonderful Planetary Radio t-shirt. Bruce, we're out of time. All right, look up in the night sky and think about whether the creatures around Red Antares are looking out and wondering what happened to parts of the Earth when the, sun, when the moon moves across. Boy, that was complicated. <laughs> or just go up and go out there and think about cheese, whichever you want. Thank you. Good night. That's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He joins us each week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio gets personal next time when we'll talk with M.G. Lord. The author of Forever Barbie has just written AstroTurf, The Private Life of Rocket Science. Have a great week, everyone. Everyone.